Tonight we begin week 10. Week 10, we're almost done. We're, if you're reading, we're in the very back part of your Bible at this point. And uh, we've looked at the story of the Bible, this, these 66 books as one united narrative. We talked about God's creation of the world, that God created out of relationship, and that human beings uh, disobeyed God and, and fell away from relationship. But God has been on the move to restore the world, all that God has made, back to himself. He does it through calling and forming a people named Israel, uh, delivering them from slavery in Egypt, creating a political nation, then when, uh, then through judgment for disobedience, leading them into exile, but then bringing them back. And then as time progresses, as people still yearn that things are made right, God sends his son, Jesus, who is our savior. And that by his life, his death, and resurrection, uh, God decisively works and judges the power of sin which leads to death. And raising Christ to new life inaugurates a new world, uh, one that is already but not yet. And to be bearers of that light in the world, Jesus calls his followers to be the church, ecclesia, called together. And last week we talked about the church. We talked about how God formed the church by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit came and filled them, uh, gave them the uh, energy, gave them the power to be believers in Jesus and to be witnesses and we looked at that book of Acts, those first eight chapters, the earliest days of the church, those days when those early Jewish Christian believers were all together in the temple, and then persecution pushed them outward into Judea and into Samaria. And we looked at how there at the end of Acts, part of Acts we read in 7 and 8, we see that the window and the door is starting to be opened to the gospel, to those who are not Jews first, to uh, Samaritans, and also uh, to the, uh, 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 in, in, in chapter 8, to the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who was reading the prophet Isaiah, probably in some ways Jewish, either by birth or by conversion. He is returning home and is baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. That's where we are so far. And so we begin tonight in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Um, at this point, uh, the first martyr of the Christian church has been killed. His name is Stephen. Stephen. He is one of the original deacons, servants of the church. He, uh, is, he is stoned to death and uh, martyr. That word comes from the Greek word martus. It is the Greek word for witness. A martyr is someone who witnesses, even to the point of death. Witness is that great word of acts, the word witness. Um, and what we see here is, in some ways, Luke is writing this. He, this is, you know, the second part. This is the sequel to his best-selling original that had his name on it. 
So he's got his sequel here, and Luke is someone connected with Paul. And so in some ways, this is building up to Paul. The first time we see Paul, uh, we see him in uh, chapter uh, 7. It says uh, in 758, uh, the, the, the people stoning Stephen dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Three verses later, we see after they have killed Stephen, Saul approved of their killing him. That's a preface. We go to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And it says, Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what does that mean? That means, you know, Saul is this guy. He is a, um, he is very zealous. What we know about Saul, it will unfold, is he is born in a place called Tarsus in Cilicia. If you look at your map, it's kind of right here. It's in small print. It's on the, it's on the Mediterranean Sea. It is an important city such that people who live there are citizens of Rome. Rome is the great empire, obviously based in where? Where is Rome, the Roman Empire based? What city? Oh, gee whiz. You know, people say you ask too hard of questions. I tried something easy. I, come on. <laughs> So you know you ask very hard questions. I said, well, we'll ask something easy then. Okay. The Roman Empire is based in Rome. Great. Okay. You're like, is it a trick question? I don't know. Is it secretly based somewhere else? No. No, it's based in Rome. I don't know. Um, so in Rome, and, and that's one of their, their, their imperial cities, and it is a city where people are, uh, where people who live there are, are citizens. Um, this ends up being really important to Paul. This is part of what makes Paul effective. Um, if you are not a citizen, as all the apostles were not citizens, what can, what can be done to them? Just about anything is the answer to that. And, uh, if, if, you know, and we see that in, in Acts. It'll later say, you know, Herod put Jesus' brother to death, and, and he saw that that made people really happy, and so he decided to arrest more of them. They got out of prison, though. Um, so Paul is from Tarsus. He is well-educated. He is schooled in uh, the, Pharisaical, the Pharisee tradition, which means he is school. He, he has learned in depth about it, uh, uh, interpretation of the scripture, and he is, uh, is well-trained, and he is very knowledgeable, and he is very zealous. That's the word. He is zealous for the traditions, he'll later say, of our ancestors. He is so zealous that when he sees, and, and zealous, you know, energetic, active, uh, driven, he is so zealous that when this new Christianity comes up, he sees it as a threat originally, that it is leading people away from the truth as he has received and understood it. And so he believes it must be stopped. And so he is, uh, they are overseeing this extra extrajudicial, and that's a big word just meaning, you know, beyond the sanction of law, murder, 
execution. Uh, could did you? In fact, this is interesting. Did you know? Could could uh, Jewish people put uh, put people to death? The answer is no. The power of death was reserved for Romans, and they executed by beheading or by crucifixion. Well, I mean, they had lots of ways. They executed people. They loved to kill people. Um, but the two major ways, beheading and, and crucifixion. Beheading is for uh, Roman citizens, uh, for people, uh, noble people. It is eventually the way Paul is executed because he's a Roman citizen. Crucifixion is for slaves, for traitors, and that's the way Jesus is executed, and many of the earliest followers are executed uh, by crucifixion. Um, so Paul is zealous. He is on his way to Damascus. He's like, this must be stopped. He is finding. We thought we just had it. This was just something in Jerusalem, but now they've expanded. And so he's going to go to Damascus, going to arrest them, bring them back, and kill them too or at least imprison them and somewhere where they'll never be heard from again. But yet, on the way there... John, yes? One of the greatest things that ever happened was when Jesus got Paul's attention. I think you're right about that. I, I think what we're going to build up to is probably Saul, Paul, is probably the second most consequential figure in the New Testament after who? Jesus. Jesus. Good. That's a good... I'm working on my easy questions tonight. Um, so, so yeah, I agree with you, Bob, 100%. And so, as, as Bob said, uh, God gets a hold of Saul. You know, Saul is convinced that he is doing something for God. Remind, remember that. Write that down if you're taking notes. Saul is convinced that what he is doing is for God. But Saul has not fully understood what God is all about. It, to him, Jesus is a man who was deranged. He's a man who thinks he's God. And if there's one thing that the Jewish people learned from the exile is God does not like it when you worship people who are not him. And so that, which is true, by the way. But what he finds is this person was a criminal. He was a person who threatened the stability of Israel because the, the Romans permitted old. They, Romans loved things that were old. And so Judaism successfully argued they were a very old religion, which they were. Uh, they were a thousand years back to King David, 1,500 years back to Abraham at least. Actually, more than that, uh, they claim to go all the way back to the first human beings, and so uh, they were an old religion. But Christianity was a new religion. Rome had a zero tolerance policy on new religions, and so, but so what would happen is if they and 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 they also had a zero tolerance policy on old religions who were who re liked to revolt. Later, we're going to find around 60, in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, Jewish extremists end up revolting, and uh, the Roman Empire comes in and crushes Jerusalem and destroys the temple. So, um, so, so what they feel is either they're going to think this is something new and come down and hit us, 
or it's going to create disturbances within our tradition and our peaceful ancient tradition uh, will be smacked down by the Romans. Either way, he feels he's doing something for God. And he comes and it seems that Jesus himself shows up to Saul. And he says, no. Jesus is saying, one, I am not just a criminal who was crucified. You see, in Deuteronomy it says, anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed. So Jesus is not just an executed criminal, he is a cursed executed criminal. But yet, somehow, Jesus is alive. And Jesus speaks to Saul and says, uh, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what to do. That's all he says there. There's no argument. He just shows up and says, I am Jesus. And it changes Saul's life. In fact, he is so blinded he cannot see. There's a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And Ananias, who apparently must be accustomed to hearing visions, is called, once, is called by name only once. Saul is called twice. And he only has to call him once and, uh, and says, and, and it appears that here I am, Lord. And he says, oh, there's a guy coming to your town. His name is Saul, and he's from Tarsus. And Ananias says, I've heard about this guy. He's bad news. Did you know that, Jesus? <laughs> like, did you know that the high priest, the chief priest, they've told him that you can come arrest Christians? The Lord says to him, Oh, him, yes, I do know him. I'm going to use him to bring my name to the Gentiles. I'm sorry, what was that again? The Wi-Fi network is not working. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> P.S. The Wi-Fi network in this room is not working. I should have mentioned that before tonight. It just went out, evidently. We're having issues. So, so, uh, and so, but yet, what happens? Ananias knows this person is dangerous, but Jesus, but Jesus himself says, go and minister to him. And what does Ananias do? do? He does it. He goes and he ministers to him. And what we find there is then his eyes are, he is... Uh, he, his eyes are opened, and he is baptized and regains his strength. And he goes to the synagogue, and what does Saul start teaching? Jesus is the Son of God. And all who heard Paul, Saul were amazed and said, Wait, I'm sorry, I thought you arrested Christians. Now you're saying the same thing that, that they say. And increasingly, it says, Saul became more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Needless to say, the Jewish leaders, he kind of loses some standing with the Jewish leaders. They try to kill him. He then, uh, his, uh, that Saul already has followers, and they take him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall. Just imagine that. Saul had planned to go and get some troops to arrest some Christians, and he would lead them to Jerusalem. Instead, Saul ends up going out in the middle of the night through the wall. You see, that changed things, wasn't it? That changed his plans, because Jesus got a hold of him. And so we see a story here of Saul's conversion, and then we see stories not involving him, not involving Saul, uh, with uh, a man, with Peter. We go back to Peter, the star of the earliest parts, and he meets a guy named Cornelius. He's a centurion. He is a Gentile. 
He is not Jewish, but he is, he is a, what they consider a God-fearer. He is not Jewish, but he believes in the Jewish God. And it says that he prays, uh, that he gives to the poor. And one afternoon, uh, an angel comes and speaks to him and says, you need to go send for a guy named Simon, and he has a message for you. And Simon comes, and Peter, and what is he, what's the message? Well, not yet. Peter gets a vision. I'm sorry. Peter gets a vision. Peter is hungry and wants something to eat, and so he orders something to eat, and while they're preparing, he sees something. He sees a vision. It's a sheet coming down, and all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds, everything that the Jewish law says is unclean is on this sheet. And then in 1013, which I always say is my cat's, our cat's favorite verse, says, hear the voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. <laughs> and he says, this must be some sort of test. You told us not to eat these things. And so is this vision about dietary laws? No. Not really. At the same time, someone who's Gentile comes and says, God told me to, for you to give me a message. And the message Peter gives is the message of Jesus. And it says, while Peter is still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word and their Gentiles. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. How did they know that? They said they were speaking in tongues. They were speaking in other languages. They were praising God. And Peter says, if God has saved them, then we can't get in the way. They'll have to be baptized too. And that's a big change, isn't it? Let's not overlook chapters 10 and 11. He goes and he tells the church in Jerusalem, hey, guess what? It turns out this thing, God wanting to save people, restore people, reconcile people, it turns out he wants to save and reconcile everyone. All kinds of people. And it says, they praise God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Gentiles were a... If you were Jewish, a good Jew in those days, Gentiles were people that God didn't like. God had called the Jewish people. They are the chosen people. And uh, he chose them and gave them the law and gave them to be a bearers that, that Gentiles could certainly uh, worship God if they'd like, and God might hear their prayers and accept their prayers, and that's kind of what we see with Cornelius, but, but, uh, but God's favor is for them, they believed, but yet... Peter finds that the goal of the Holy the, of Pentecost is to expand to people of everywhere, everywhere. Um, that it turns out that this, uh, this you know, we've talked about this story is that God has built this this shining city on the hill, this people Israel, symbolized by this great temple on the high mountain of Zion, and from there the light is to beam out, and 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 all the people are drawn there. It all draws there to that moment, that moment of the crucifixion, that moment of the resurrection, that moment of Pentecost. It, it's like all the story of human history. We talked about it pointing, that it funnels to that point, and then it, from there it pushes outward. So God gathers the world into one place and then pushes it outward to the ends of the world. 
See, from there, then the world, uh, the world is the next is the next move. The world is the next. The world's the next move, and so we see they're starting to expand. Uh, starting to expand beyond, uh, beyond uh, the Jewish people, but also uh, to the uh, to the world, to people who are not the chosen people. But at the same time, we're going to see as we continue talking about Paul. Paul sees it as an outgrowth of God's covenant with Abraham, covenant with David, covenant with Israel. That covenant, that new covenant, is an outgrowth because that covenant with Israel was a covenant to be bearers of light, to be bearers of salvation. And now through that covenant, God turns out he's not just saving them, but the whole world. So there is a continuity and connection. That's why the Old Testament and the New Testament both matter, because there's one story, and it pushes to this point, this point between the ends of the gospel and the beginning of Acts, and then we watch as it pushes out, and, and we continue to be part of that story uh, even, even today. So in Antioch, uh, they, they come together. They're called Christians there. Uh, Antioch is the place where Paul and Saul and Barnabas are set apart. It's the place where they learn the faith. It's a place where they are discipled. Over a period, if you look at your timeline, uh, it's a period that is not like six weeks. Um, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 13 years. They're there. That's, that's my... Uh, that's, uh, uh, my reading from the time he's converted to the time that he is, uh, that he is sent, that he's sent away, and so he goes on uh, what they call the we call the first missionary journey from Antioch. Uh, he goes to uh, to Cyprus. He goes to uh, you, you'll see that you see the line there. He's it's, it's probably the smallest area. Of his, he goes to Iconium, where something kind of humorous happens. Um, the uh, uh, or like uh, in I'm sorry, Lystra, and they they see him healing, and they say, "Ah, the gods have come down to us in human form." Barnabas, they call Zeus. This is chapter 14. Paul, they call Hermes because he's the chief speaker. Uh, the priest of Zeus. Uh, who has a temple, he comes and he brings oxen and he says, I'm going to sacrifice to you. It's kind of funny. What you're going to find when you read Acts is that Paul, Saul, is, he's, either a, he's either a dangerous criminal or a god in the flesh. There appears to be nothing in between for the poor guy. <laughs> they either treat him, when oftentimes they treat him like a criminal, then they treat him uh, like a god uh, because they see the power uh, coming through them and it says the apostles uh, hear this they tear their clothes and say we are mortals just like you and we're bringing you good news that you need to turn away from worthless things to the living god who made all these things and now has sent a witness and it says uh, it uh it says, then, well, then it went back. The Jewish leaders came from Antioch and Iconium, won over the crowds. Then they stoned him. Well, apparently, if you're not Zeus, you're not much use to me. They stone him and drag him out of the city, and they return uh, to Antioch. 
At this point, there is a little bit of a controversy in the in the in the early in the church, and that is the controversy. Well, Gentiles get to be part of this gospel; they get to be part of the church, but do they have to become Jews first? The primary flashpoint of this is: Do they need to be circumcised? The women are like, "What's the big deal?" Men are like, "Hmm." Now, I'm not saying women, you, you, you probably have more empathy. If the shoe were on the other foot, guys would be like, yeah, what's the point? Big deal. But, but, but you probably have more empathy for that. But the men in here are like, yeah, I don't know if I'd want to convert that much. <laughs> you know, I, and uh, uh, yeah, I don't really, yeah, I'm not sure I want to convert that much. Um, and, and do they have to follow all the the laws. It is thought that at this time, this is, this is, I want to be really careful because, um, you know, do, is, uh, you know, do, at this point, it is possible that Paul writes his first letter around the late 40s after his first missionary journey to a church in Galatia. It is possible also that he wrote them later. Actually, one, So Galatians is either one of the really early letters or it's one of the actually the later letters. Uh, they didn't put dates on them, so we don't really know. Uh, but when we look at... But one thing that's arguing for an early date for Galatians is that it really does appear to be within this controversy of the time. Uh, Galatians is a, is a book um, that is a letter... Paul writes letters, the Pauline, uh, what we call the Pauline corpus, uh, it goes from the book of Romans to the book of Philemon or or, 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 uh, Philemon. Um, And uh, and, uh, it is possible that he didn't necessarily write all of them. Some have suggested that possibly uh, there were others who wrote later in his name which was not as bad of an offense as it would be today. Um, but some of those people, I find that the ones that um, they say Paul didn't write are the ones that say things they don't like. So sometimes it's kind of convenient to argue that Paul maybe didn't really write it. So, so let me clarify. You're saying Galatians is the first book that Paul it, it may have been. It may have been. The, there's two... Yeah, <laughs> There's two theories. So the idea is it was either... So so Galatia turns out, look at your map, it's a big place. Um, He went to South Galatia during the first missionary journey. And they'd say that was where he had contacts. If that is where he's writing, he probably wrote in the late 40s. If it's North Galatia, he probably wrote later. Having said this, only North Galatia was considered to be Galatia in the earliest years of the Roman Empire. The long and the short of this is really, we don't, we don't know for sure. This may have been his earliest letter. It might not have been. But it's interesting that it, uh, it, it deals with many of the same controversies that come up as a result and of the time of Paul's first journey. Does that make sense? 
So it could be the first, it could be the earliest one. You say, what order are they in the scripture? Do you know actually they are in order, roughly, and they're in order from longest to shortest in the Bible. Uh, Romans is 16 chapters. Uh, Philemon is 22 verses, I believe. Uh, so it is kind of written uh, long to short, but it is not in chronological order. And so Galatians deals with this question at this point. And Galatians um, is structured like many of Paul's letters. There's no one structure fits all, but there is some thought that when Paul writes a letter, it is with an introduction. Uh, he, he then uh, creates some personal rapport uh, with them. And then he gives a theological argument often followed by an ethical or practical argument. Um, we see this in Romans really clearly, uh, where um, chapter 12 begins, Therefore, therefore, I, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, those mercies he's talked about in Romans 1 through 11, therefore, I beseech you, in view of what I've just been talking about, do this. So, so often it's theological exhortation and then practical exhortation that grows out of the theology. For Paul, for the early church, how you live grows out of what you believe about God. We heard about that on Sunday, didn't we? Where, where, uh, where Chris talked about he, he took a text from the ethical portion of 2 Thessalonians, the practical portion, and that comes out of what Paul's talked about who God is. And, and Chris, Pastor Chris reminded us that uh, how we live grows out of what we believe about God. I hope you got that out of the sermon Sunday. <laughs> that what we believe about God determines how we live. And that's how Paul structures his letters. He then ends with a farewell, often with personal details. And in some of them, uh, most of these were written by... Um, by, by secretaries called amanuensis and they wrote often Paul may have dictated and they wrote it out on, on the papyrus scroll it was meant to be read in the churches to which it was sent and, uh, and often at the end it's thought Paul had possibly an eye ailment and so it, we, we see it, Paul says, look what large letters I write. It's often possible he could not, have see, he could not see well. And uh, it's uh, something that may be the thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about that, that's kind of well known. Uh, that could be this, uh, this eye ailment. Some have suggested other things, many of them so wild, not worth mentioning. Um, but... Uh, but so he would often write at the end. It was also a way to kind of authenticate it. You know, yes, it's not in my handwriting, maybe not even in the words I would typically use, but I, Paul, have dictated this letter. My faithful scribe has taken it down, and now I write to you. Uh, God bless you all. That's kind of what he, kind of what he says. Uh, so Galatians, we see this. Galatians, uh, Paul reminds them that he has been sent uh, not by any central church organization. though He was sent by Antioch. Uh, but sent through the, through the word of, of God, Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and he writes to the church um, at Galatia. He sees this Judaizing, this idea that one must be circumcised, must live according to the law in order to be accepted by God. He views this as another gospel, another gospel. 
And he says that if, uh, if you can earn salvation, then there is uh, no good news in the death and resurrection of Jesus because then you could just earn it. And so he mentions that he has argued with other people, but that he has been vindicated and that through Jesus' death, that um, through Jesus' death, the door has been opened to Gentiles and that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That uh, Jesus is the reason that you are saved, not by what you do. That, but at the same time, he is not rejecting Judaism. He rem reminds in chapter 3 that this is an outgrowth of the covenant of, that God gave Abraham. Uh, God, didn't God say Abraham? All the nations, he says, oh, and when he said nations, what he meant was not just the Jewish ones, but all the nations, the Gentiles, shall be blessed in you. And he says God has opened the door through believing in Jesus Christ. And that if you believe, you may receive the Holy Spirit by faith. He talks about the law, that the law's job was to, one, to keep the world from totally collapsing on itself before Jesus comes, but also uh, to lead people to a knowledge that they are in need of a Savior. There's kind of, in, in classical theology, there's a thought that there's three uses of the law. The first is that the law is a mirror. And this is kind of what he's talking about here, that it shows you um, what is, uh, it shows you that your need for a savior. Uh, that the law, when you see the law uh, read um, in the old English liturgy uh, used in the Church of England, the liturgy that John Wesley used, uh, at the beginning of the service, they read the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and what is so unusual to us today when we think of kind of liturgies and worship as celebration is it begins, the service begins with this, and everyone is read, and the congregation responds, Lord, have mercy. They don't respond, that seems reasonable. We'll do our best to try it next week. They ask, Lord, have mercy, or, and incline our hearts to follow this law. Let's do that again. Read the Ten Commandments every week. Read the Ten, and and there are still some church that, that that that's part of the that is the the service that every time John Wesley celebrated communion that was that was what he did. They read the Ten Commandments. That those I've actually officiated at a service using the sixteen sixty two Book of Common Prayer, and it's powerful. It's powerful. Uh, maybe someday we'll try that here. Um, but it's actually it's it's really feels very different. But it has a real power uh, to it because it follows the shape of the gospel. Um, and so what it says is when you see the law and, and, and then you say, well, you know, I haven't murdered anybody. Well, what does Jesus say about that? Remember, he says, if you think an evil thought about someone else, it's like you've killed them. We're sunk. <laughs> Some of you are thinking an evil thought about someone right now. I won't point out anyone. Um, <laughs> And, and so it is, it is a point that, you know, can we keep the law on our own? And the answer is no. No. Why? Because we are bound. We are imprisoned under the power of sin. 
But when Christ came, we could be justified. That's a great word, isn't it? Justified. We could be made right. We could be set right um, with God by faith. That by believing in Jesus, we can be made right with God in a way that we could never do with the law. And so my question is, if you have something that can't make you right and something that can, why are you leaving what can make you right for something that can't make you right? That's the message of Galatians. And that's the message that really is um, the message for us today. And so the... You know, so the first is, is a mirror. The second is to restrain the basest human instincts. You get some idea that, you know, probably if you kill someone, that'd be a bad thing. And so your most base human instincts do may not keep you from doing something evil, but it may keep you from actually killing them, which is a good thing. And the third thing it does is it, it, it trains us in righteousness. A lot of us major in that third one. The problem was the Galatians had so majored in the third one, they had lost the first ones. That they said, well, we'll just follow, we just need to follow the law. We just need to buckle down. And uh, Paul says, no. No. That's not how it works. Uh, that uh, the law, that you try to follow the law, you try to do what is right, you just can't seem to make it. But if you trust Jesus and you invite the Holy Spirit into your life, that the Spirit will bear fruit in you that the law cannot Does that make sense to you that he's saying, listen, he's saying, I know it sounds to you, this could be a message to Methodists now, it sounds to you that the best way to, do, to, to, to be right before God is to just do more and get better, but, but trying to do that, you will find that you just keep sinking in the mud. But Jesus comes to lift you out, fill you with the Spirit, and the Spirit will do that which the law desires for you to do, but is powerless to actually make you do it. You need grace. There you go. That's, that's just a reminder. That's what that, and that's what he's talking about, I believe, in Galatians chapter 5. And, and he says, well, and because you live by grace, you can bear one another's burdens. That when someone else has sinned, if you live by grace and by the power of the Spirit... You can instead, you know, when you live by the law and someone else is not living by the law, what is what what can be our posture? Judgment, condemnation. I'm doing well, you're not. But if you live by grace, that's a different matter. That's a different matter. If you live by grace. Uh, you can bear their burdens because the power of sin that affects them is also the power of sin that but for the grace of God, so you are affected with. That's what he's talking about. Galatians is a powerful, powerful book. And he says there in that time, in, in that time, uh, you know, do, so do we, must people obey the law? He says, No. And it turns out the Jerusalem Council comes together. That once again, they, they come together, and, um, and, and there are some who say, unless you 
are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, <laughs> Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. And they go to Jerusalem, and they say, if God, if God has called, reached out to them, then why should we trouble them? And so they decide, they'll write to them, what you only thing you need to do is abstain from things that were sacrificed to idols, polluted by idols, and from fornication, and from whatever has been strangled, and from blood. So in other words, what they're saying is, you need to avoid the excesses of Gentile society around them. You can't go and also go worship down at the pagan temple. You can't go visit the temple prostitute. Um, you can't, and, and says, don't get involved. He's telling them, you, you may not, you don't have to live by the Jewish law, but you've got to make a break from your old life. That's kind of what they're saying there, I believe, in Acts 15. And so they, they, send, uh, they send the letter, and uh, then, then uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, are going to go again, but then they disagree whether to take uh, John Mark. Barnabas wanted to. But Paul says, no, he deserted us back then, uh, and I can't trust him. And so actually they separate, and uh, Timothy <laughs> joins Paul and Silas, and they go on the second missionary journey uh, through uh, uh, to Derbe, to Lystra. You'll see that on your map. And then they see uh, the man of Macedonia in a vision, and they're saying, come across. And until now, they've all been in a continent today we call Asia, I want to be careful that you'll see Asia mentioned in the Bible. Asia does not refer to the entire continent, but refers to a province. Uh, you'll see that near the center of your map. But they see a vision saying, come across the man of Macedonia. And so Paul goes, he crosses over, he goes and looks for this man who he has seen in a vision, and he gets there. He look, And where's the first place Paul, Saul goes when he gets to a new place, you know? He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue. He doesn't go where the Gentiles are. He actually goes where the Jews are. Again, emphasizing the continuity uh, from the uh, the continuity of, um, of of Judaism. And so he goes to the, the the to find the synagogue. He finds there's no synagogue there. And instead, uh, because to have a synagogue, you have to have ten men. To have a synagogue. I believe that's even true today, to have a Jewish synagogue. Uh, ten men, I think they call it a minion. But there's no ten men. There's no Jewish community. Instead, there's just Lydia down at the river praying, a seller of purple. That means she's wealthy. And so that is the where, where the gospel spreads to Europe. Uh, that's the first step for that's to many of our ancestors is there the vision, and the woman, Lydia, who says she's a worshiper of God. She has baptized her and her household, and the gospel spreads. And what we find is the gospel spreads, but as the gospel spreads, so does controversy, that everywhere they go, uh, there's largely a riot. I heard it was said, I think it was N.T. Wright, uh, the, the, the English bishop and the great theologian and great student of Paul, who said uh, he finds that wherever Paul went, there was a riot. Wherever I go, they serve tea. <laughs> <laughs> so
So wherever Paul goes, uh, there is a riot, except in Athens, there's not a riot, but, uh, but he is just so strange and so simple. Athens is a place of great learning, and they believed in immortality of the soul, and here Paul is saying that even uh, that, that the body itself is raised. We believe at this point, possibly Paul wrote first and second uh, Thessalonians. This is a time, once again, connecting with this theme. It is uh, the theme of First and Second Thessalonians is fidelity under persecution, especially within the realm of looking forward to the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the day of the return. He writes Second Thessalonians because apparently they had taken this thing a little too far, and they believe Jesus was coming. Persecution was bad, and Jesus is coming back. You know, like tomorrow. We talked about that Sunday, and so they had quit their jobs, and they just waited. Paul says, no, there's other things to come, and gives that great line, one of the great verses of the Bible in 2 Thessalonians, reminds us that God is not slow in fulfilling his promises, as some would think of slowness, but is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He's saying there is still yet time. Uh, for people to come to repentance. I do think Paul would be surprised how much time there has been, um, but uh, Paul uh, continues in that time, in that midst of that persecution, uh, going, um, uh, and he comes back, uh, back to Antioch uh, once again. Then he goes on the third missionary journey from Antioch to Galatia to Ephesus and to Macedonia once again to Greece, um, and he, that's a, it's, it's a longer journey. You'll see that on your map. At this time, we think this time of the third missionary journey is when Paul writes First and Second Corinthians and Romans. First and Second Corinthians is a, uh, is a book that uh, talks about the realities of being a church. You're going to see from these on, you see a lot of Paul's pastoral sense. That at First Corinthians, Paul had evangelized that church. It built it up, but they had broken into factions, some saying, I follow Paul, some saying, I follow Apollos, and they're like, listen, folks, you really all need to follow Jesus. <laughs> and uh, he said, and, and I've always said I want to do a sermon series on the first and second Corinthians. I may, I didn't, I almost prevailed on Scott to do this. I may prevail on Chris to do ones called, called Church Behaving Badly. <laughs> That's what I think it's about. That's the theme of, of Corinthians. Uh, they behave badly. Uh, they are tolerating sexual immorality. There's a man who is living with his stepmother, and Paul's like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. You need to, you, you need to. There is, and it's interesting. The stepmother is not a Christian, and Paul has no condemnation for her, no correction for her, only for the one who claims to be a Christian. Pay attention to that. That is not the business of the church. We find, and now the church today, we find it more convenient to judge and condemn those who are not Christians and then give a pass to the people who are. The biblical witness is the opposite of that. Because, gee whiz, you know, people who aren't Christians are sinners? What a shock. Of course they are. Did you read Galatians? My first letter. Um, and, and, uh, and so they do that. And he says, you need to form the, the body of Christ. He talks about the Lord's Supper. He says, you've made the Lord's Supper into a, a, a demonstration of your social divisions. The rich people show up and get stuffed and drunk, and the poor people have nothing to eat. 
Then you divided yourselves on gifts. You've said, well, I've got better gifts than you do. And he says, no, no. What really matters is love. See, all that pieces together to 1 Corinthians 13, which Paul did not write for a wedding. You can use it as a wedding. I think that's fine. Um, but it was not written for a wedding. I know that's the only time we hear it. Is it a wedding? But it was not written for that. In fact, he's saying, you, bunch of people, everything you do needs to be done in love. You should love the poor people in your church. It's amazing because that church had rich people and poor people in it. And, and that is sadly rarer now than it was then. Second uh, Corinthians, he decides, you know, there, there's two missing letters um, which are apparently even worse, like more harsh. The second one says, I think he says in Second Corinthians, shall I come after you with a stick? Um, he had clearly tried to fix up things, but it had failed. Uh, but Paul is, is um, vindicating his claim uh, to be an apostle, uh, to be an authoritative interpreter of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also during this time, we believe that uh, Paul wrote the letter of Romans. I would, could spend hours, and I have done a Bible study of hours on the book of Romans. Romans is this great book. I'm going to give you like the 30-second overview. Romans is a church mixed of Jews and Gentiles, and they're still fighting with each other a few years later now. And the Jews are saying, hey, um, uh, you Gentiles, uh, you are on the bottom right, rung of, uh, of God's view. And Gentiles said, well, at least we didn't kill Jesus. And they're like, they're, they're going at each other. And Paul says, hey, got good news. You're all sinners. You all need Jesus. And Jew and Gentile, it doesn't matter. All of you are in need of a Savior. And God has provided one in Jesus Christ. That's the 30-second overview of the book of Romans. I've done it no justice, but just giving you the 30-second 30 30 overview. Uh, Paul returns to Jerusalem. Everyone tells him that's a bad idea. Turns out it is a bad idea from one sense because Paul goes to Jerusalem and he stirs up a really big riot and he gets himself arrested. And for three years, he is held in, um, in under the custody of the governor, the, the king, all these petty leaders that the Romans had set up. Uh, he had... Uh, uh, he was talking to Felix, and he makes his defense to him, which involves self-control, which doesn't really work so well for Felix, given that he's just stolen a 16-year-old wife from another king. Self-control is not really his major. Um, <laughs> it says, and as he discussed justice, self-control, and the coming judgment, this is Acts 24, 25, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present. When I have an opportunity, I will send for you. Uh, verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. For that reason, he could used to send for him very often and converse with him. He's got to be thinking, Paul, you are the smartest dumb person I know. <laughs> and over time, though, eventually Paul, because he is a Roman citizen, has the right to appeal to the emperor's tribunal, which he does. And we say, well, this is terrible, but it is but, but Luke reminds us this is within God's plan because what happens? He gets an all-expenses-paid trip, not a good one, to Rome, the center of imperial power. We get this rather interesting, uh, and this is, you know, he survived two times. They're planning to kill him as he's being transported. Uh, you know, it's like a, it's like a, like a movie. 
And then he sails for Rome. They nearly ship. Well, they actually do shipwreck. Uh, and they end up on Malta for the winter. It's actually a really interesting story. But eventually Paul arrives in Rome. And he is uh, in this place uh, in prison in his home. And it's here that Paul writes the final letters in these last four or five years of his life. In prison, he is writing uh, Philemon, Philemon, sending a slave back, reminding him that the family of God is not divided by free and slave. It's interesting, Philemon's a runaway slave, which means that the owner could have him put to death. And he says, formerly he was not useful to you, but now he is useful now as a brother. Uh, Colossians is written again as a correction to the church at Colossae. They had a they 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 got into all kinds of heresy about who Jesus was. That one writer said was a mix of Jewish legalism, Greek philosophic speculation, and Oriental mysticism. In uh, in Colossians, and there he simply talks to them about who Jesus is. That great line in chapter 1 that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is not made, but he is the one who through whom all things are made. That he in fact was crucified, buried, and raised again. And that we can have, uh, we can have eternal life by faith through him. In Ephesians... Ephesians is one not written, and not written because of controversy. Uh, Ephesians is uh, written about the church, and about the role of the church, and about what it means to be the church, and asks them to live both the privileges but also the responsibilities, the goals of unity, the goal of building up the body of Christ. In Philippians, Philippians is probably his favorite church, and he writes to them a note of thanks. And then he says, he exhorts them to live worthy, to live in a way worthy of this, uh, of this life they have been given, to live in unity with humility. And there in these last days of his life, he writes to two of his protégés, Timothy and Titus. And for them, he gives them the sum total of his life's work leading churches. Some of it's practical. Some of it's a reminder to hold on to the teachings. That there will come a day, people will want you to teach all kinds of things, but hold fast to the traditions you have been taught. Uh, and he says there's going to come a day when people are going to want preachers who tell them what they want to hear than what, what God actually has to say. That will never happen, I know. And, that was, and you say, well, that happens now. It was also happening in Paul's day. We say things have gotten worse, and Paul's reminding us things have kind of stayed the same. They always haven't been great. And so they reminds us, he reminds them of the importance of maintaining, uh, maintaining their faith and of uh, maintaining that which, uh, which God has, has given them. And it ends at 2 Timothy, it says, you know, which is probably the last book he wrote. He says, uh, you know, now, as for me, I am already being poured out as a libation. The time of my departure has come. We believe it probably in the early six, early mid-60s when Paul was martyred. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept 
the faith. But what he's reminding Timothy is that even when Paul dies, the gospel will not die with him. That the gospel will continue and it will spread. The book of Acts reminds us that it starts in Jerusalem and it goes to Rome. And it says all roads lead to Rome and all roads lead from Rome. And there in that story, the story of Paul does not end tragically. In fact, we never see the depiction of his death in the scriptures. But the story of Paul ends with a note that God is on the move. That in him and through those whom he has called, God is working to spread the good news that all people can be saved. So that's the story of the early church, that story of the gospel on the move, pushing out. And, uh, and next week we're going to look at the final book. In two weeks we're going to look at the final book, the final hope when God will restore all things.